Good morning, everyone. I'm Tom Nelson, and uh, welcome to our Leeward campus. I hope you had a good 4th of July. Did we have a good 4th of July weekend? Uh, it was really fun for Liz and me. Uh, we had uh, a mini family reunion, or we call them rebellions in my family. Um, and uh, we were in Cleveland, and my daughter Sarah and her husband live in Cleveland, and uh, my grand dog, not a grandchild, grand dog named Tucker, uh, and then Schaefer also joined us from L.A., and it was reminding, it reminded me just so much of how relationships matter to us, that all of us long to know others and to be known, and it's almost as if we are hardwired for intimacy, isn't it? And the question I'd like to raise this morning is, why is that? Why does intimacy and close friendships and relationships matter so much to us? Well, the Bible addresses that question, and it addresses it in a powerful way because our longing to know and to be known, the Bible says, is a reflection of the one in whose image we have been made. In other words, if you are new to the Bible or you've read it for a while, you know the Bible begins in Genesis, the very first book of the Bible, and we are introduced to a creator God who makes us in his image, this triune God who is a God who desires to be known. And as we move through the Bible, as we come to the second book, the book of Exodus, it's not surprising to us that all of a sudden in this microburst of revelation, in the second book, we encounter a God who deeply wants to be known. And what surprises us, perhaps, is not just that he is a relational God who knows and wants to be known, but how he is known and how he reveals himself in the book of Exodus is often what surprises us. So uh, if you've brought a Bible, I'd like you to turn with me to the second book of the Old Testament, the book of Exodus. Now, as we continue our message series, I want you to remember something very important. The book we call Exodus comes from a Greek rendition, but the Hebrew idea is really not the name of the book is not Exodus. It is the Hebrew word names. Now, this is important to grasp because, you know, when's the last time you recommended a book to someone and they asked you, what is the title of the book? And you said, names. I mean, if you've published a book or you're in the book kind of thing, you don't send a publisher the name of your book as names. It's not a good marketing strategy. But it surprises us that this book's title and theme is the idea of names or name. So this clues us in to something very important to the integrity of the literature and the Hebrew writer. In other words, this book discloses for us a name for God a powerful name for God, and we need to understand in our story as we enter into it that God is the main character. In other words, when you uh, are asked the book of Exodus, whether you've seen it in a movie or whatever, you think Moses is the main character, right? I mean, he's important, but the writer of Exodus wants us to know right away by the framing of the title names that God is the main character and his name is at the heart of our story. So I want us to understand as we enter into the story that this story is about who God is and in our text, particularly today, is why he matters so much. So as our story opens, let's remember that God's covenant people, the Hebrew people, are in Egypt. They're not in the land of promise yet. And they wait and they wait and they wait 
Year after year after year and century after century, they wait. And as they wait for God to intervene, life goes from good to bad to horrible. They are under enslavement and oppression in Egypt. In the midst of this dark storyline, a patch of God light emerges in the first chapter. A a miraculous child is born. A Hebrew boy is born. His name is Moses. Moses is groomed by Pharaoh to be the next leader of Egypt. He lives in the palace, and he is viewed as the deliverer, not only of Egypt, but as we know in the story, it is Moses who will deliver God's covenant people to the promised land. So what surprises us in the story early is that Moses, this great deliverer, groomed by God, groomed by Pharaoh, the best and brightest, the strongest, most courageous leader imaginable, fails miserably. And he fails so much that he is running for his life and spends 40 years in a Midian wilderness. And we think, oops, the story's going nowhere in a hurry. But at the end of Exodus chapter 2, Exodus story writer closes this scene with the hopeful words of this antiphonal refrain. It's threefold. God hears, God sees, and God remembers. Now, as the story continues in Exodus 3 through 5, God steps into the fast-flowing stream of time and space, and from a burning bush that does not, is not consumed, God reveals himself to Moses. Now, we know in the response that we looked at last week, Moses is a very flawed dude. He's dumbstruck, and he's very unwilling to cooperate with God in delivering his people. In the midst of this, God discloses himself in chapter 3. Remember, the theme of the whole book is names. He discloses his great name for the first time in the Bible. He says to Moses, I am who I am. And in that context, a name reveals character. What is the characteristic or character of God that is revealed? Two things are primary. One is that God is the creator God who is eternal. He is eternally existent, but he's also a personal God who longs to be known and to know. And this sets this God all head and shoulders apart, all gods, including all the gods of Egypt, as well as the idolatrous gods in your heart and mine. So this morning, as we enter back into the story, let me just say that we are going to cover a lot of literary terrain. Seven chapters is a lot of text. But unless you get too worried that I'm going to go forever, I want you to see that in this larger section of text, there is a continuous thread of thought that connects us together that makes the navigation bearable. And that is this. What's the main theme through these seven chapters? It is this, God will do anything that is within his character to make himself known. God will do anything within his character to make himself known. As we press into this, you will see three tributaries of thought that elucidate that idea. In chapter 6 through 10, first, God makes himself known through judgment, 6 through 10. Secondly, on the heels of that, God makes himself known through mercy, 
That's chapters 11 through 12. And then all of this points, thirdly, to God making himself known through his son, which this whole story points to Jesus. And we'll unpack that for a moment as we build to the end. So first, God makes himself known through judgment. Now, can you imagine what it's like for you to be Moses? Let's walk back into his sandals. He goes back to Egypt, and with bees knocking and palm sweating and heart racing, Moses walks back into the world he once knew. It was the world of his homeland. Massive, brilliant palaces. I mean, Egypt was the place in the world to be, the most advanced technical. It was palatial. It was the life he knew, the smells, the sights, the sounds. He walks into that massive temple of Pharaoh, and his heart must have longed for home. But his heart also was afraid. Because if anybody in the continent or the world knew how powerful Pharaoh was, it was Moses. And he knew that as he went back, Moses could have taken his life in that moment. I mean, Pharaoh could have taken his life in that moment. So if you imagine yourself going back to Egypt, Moses is both joyful, both a sense of this is home to me, but he's also scared spitless. He's asking the most powerful man in the world for the most impossible request. So to understand our story trajectory, the question that emerges in chapter 5, verse 2, sets the theme of the storyline. And the question is, what will King Pharaoh's response be to Moses? Notice, if you have your Bible open, if you turn there, if you haven't already, chapter 5, verse 2. But Pharaoh said, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go. I don't know this Lord. And moreover, I'm not going to let Israel go. See, Pharaoh's question to Moses frames the storyline. This is the question. Who is this God? Pharaoh will say to Moses over and over again, this will be the interplay in the story as you read it, and I encourage you to read it more this week. Pharaoh will say, do you know who I am? <laughs> and Moses will look him in the eye and say, in essence, do you know who the I am is? And the theme of the power between the gods of Egypt and the one true God of Israel is the ongoing tension in the story. Notice in chapter 6, verse 1, as the story builds, God introduces himself as having a strong arm twice, a theme that will be all through our story. And the question for those who enter the story is, whose arm will be stronger, the gods of Egypt or the God of the Hebrews? And so framing this then from chapter 7 on, there is a sense of playing cat and mouse, you feel it. It's almost humorous in the story between Pharaoh and Moses. They go back and forth of the gods of Egypt and the God of Moses. Repeatedly, Pharaoh will tell Moses and Aaron that this God they keep talking about means nothing to him, and he wants God, this God, to take a hike. That's the idea. But the God who longs to be known, the God who refuses to be ignored, will not take a hike. Instead, as you read through the story, you will hear over and over again the word no. God will reveal himself in powerful judgment. 
Pharaoh squirms. He digs in his heels. But God continually says, I will be known. And let me just give you an example. If you look at the storyline, you'll see how this idea of intimate knowledge, not just cognitive knowledge, but intimate knowledge of relationship, appears so many times. Let me just give you an example. Chapter 6, verse 7. Chapter 7, verse 5. 7, verse 16. 8, verse 10. 8, 22. You get the idea. 9, 14. 9, 16. 9, 29. 10, 2. 11, 7. You get the idea? And the question is, how will God make himself known? Now, again, God makes himself known in many ways. But here, the storyline is that God makes himself known sometimes through powerful acts of judgments, i.e. the ten plagues. Now, I think for us, as we enter this story and, and live in the story of the plagues and God's judgment, many of us in a postmodern or late modern world have a hard time with plausibility that God is a God of judgment, don't we? Sometimes it's hard to get in our hearts and minds that a loving God is also a God of judgment. It just seems to be incoherent at first glance. And I get that. But let's not forget that while God is unimaginably loving, God also passionately hates evil with the most unimaginable passion and the carnage of death and injustice it unleashes on his good world. Think with me for just a moment. A God who is loving but does not take evil seriously and deal with evil decisively is a God who is anything but good. He would be a moral monster. I don't know if you heard the story in the news this week. It was really shocking. You remember the conviction of a physician who was a cancer doctor in Detroit. His name was Farid Fatah. He was given a 45-year sentence. And uh, he made all these millions of dollars giving cancer treatment to people who didn't have cancer. And it killed him. And the response that you read and hear on the news like, was utter outrage by the family members and such unbelievable evil. And rightly so. But if we are outraged by evil like that, how much more is a perfectly good, holy God to be outraged by evil? See, the goodness of God is not negated, nor is it ever undermined with his acts of righteous judgment against evil, against sin or enslavement or oppression. The goodness of God is validated by it. Heaven and hell are divergent destinies because God takes evil so seriously. God is not only a powerful, truly loving, truly wise, holy God. He is also a God who deals with evil. First glance, God may not be all who we think he is. But a closer look reveals that God is far more amazing than we can ever imagine it to be. And here we have it in the storyline. In chapters 7 through 10, we encounter the first nine plagues. Makes for some really exciting reading, and I encourage you to read it carefully and imaginatively. Almost beats Harry Potter, just almost. I want to just touch, though, for the length of the text, on a few broad brushstrokes that give the texture of truth that are exhibited in these plagues. 
First, notice the plagues unleashed by God come in three sequential waves. You have to see that in the literary structure. The first wave are the plagues of the Nile turning to red or blood, depending on how you translate that. The slimy frogs and the nasty gnats. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm not really fond of blood, <laughs> nor am I fond of frogs, especially when they were squishing, splashing, smushing all over the house and everything you're eating, and, or nasty gnats. I mean, that's brutal. But what we need to understand is not only is brutality and messiness, but you'll notice in the first wave that the Egyptian occultic evil masters match the first two plagues with power. Don't miss that. But when they get to the third plague of the nasty gnats, I'm not sure why this is the dividing line, they reach their power limit and they say to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God, the most powerful God. They tell Pharaoh that. Embedded in the story is an important truth for all of us to keep in mind. While God is all-powerful, the evil one and the evil he unleashes is also very powerful. Hear me carefully. We not only live in a God-bathed world, we presently live in a world that is hell-bent, that is hell-bent on evil and is active, deceptive, and persuasive. We shudder, don't we, when evil unmasks itself before us. But most of the time, evil lurks in the shadows of obscurity. Think about that with me for a moment. Whether it's a temptation we face, you face, I face this week, an ongoing temptation we struggle with that keeps tripping us up. Whether it's an idol that continues to entice our hearts in false worship whether it's spiritual deception in our life or our marriage or in a church congregation or a nation. The evil one is never to be cavalierly dismissed or ignored. Do not miss this. The power of the evil one is strong. Never take the evil one lightly or dismiss him in your life or mine. Notice the second way builds on this. It's the plague of swarming insects, the death of livestock, and boils. Gosh, gives you creeps, doesn't it? Boils all over animal and beast, right? And humans. But notice now in the storyline, these plagues only affect the Egyptians. There's a sovereign choice of protection on God's covenant people. Right on the heels of wave one, wave two is the third wave. And it's hail, locusts, and pitch black darkness. Lasting, can you imagine, for three days? Talk about all hell breaking loose. That's the idea. And can you imagine, if you walk in the sandals across time, how that would freak you out and your kids out? Not only the river turned to blood or frogs and flies everywhere, then locusts eating every living thing, then hail pouring down on you, and last... The sun disappearing for three whole days. Wow. Make a good end-of-the-world apocalyptic movie, wouldn't it? That's the idea. Another important literary brushstroke here to observe as you read through the plagues is that each plague specifically challenged a particular Egyptian god, do not miss that, who was worshipped by the Egyptians. Let me just give you a couple of examples. The plague of the Nile turning to blood challenged the Egyptian god of the Nile, the very lifeblood of Egypt. If you go to Egypt today, 
uh, you'll notice uh, that the Nile is literally a lifeblood in desert on every side. It was figuratively and physically the lifeblood of the whole Egyptian nation. And it was this God that they worshipped that was first challenged and eclipsed. Notice the plague of the frogs. This was uh, tied directly in the release to an Egyptian fertility god. The plague of darkness challenged perhaps the most important god of Egypt, God Ra, the god of sun. And God eclipsed, the true God eclipsed that god. So the writer is telling us through this story that God, the God of Israel, is vastly more powerful than any Egyptian god. And let us also keep in mind as we read through the plagues and as you uh, encourage you to study them, the threads of the creation account found in Genesis 1 and 2 are all over there because Genesis and Exodus are really one story. Each plague, as you read it, demonstrates in living color that the Hebrew God is the eternal existing I am. He is the Lord over all creation. Now think with me for a moment. As you enter into this apocalyptic plague moment, each plague demonstrates God's sovereign power over creation. The God in Genesis who brought creation out of chaos reverses the order and now delivers chaos from his creation. This is not just climate change. This is climate implosion. He messes with everything. Everything. Every square inch of Egypt is affected. And notice specifically how the very water that Pharaoh sought to extinguish the Hebrew babies in becomes the very judgment of death for Egypt. God's sovereign power swallows up the Egyptian gods and their power. Think with me for a moment. The most powerful man in the world, no question. The most advanced technological nation in the world. The most educated, the most prosperous financially nation in the world at this time is suddenly rendered by the one true God as absolutely impotent, bankrupt, and desperate. Wow. That's a demonstration of who God is. Remember, the story of Exodus is about who God is and why he matters so much. Even with the demonstration, isn't it amazing of God's power? Incontrovertible evidence. You'll notice in the story repeatedly the words hardened heart, hardened heart, hardened heart, hardened heart, Pharaoh's hardened heart. And you go, wow. Pharaoh refuses to believe or even repent. And even though God continues over and over again to be patient, in the story, God, you want to say, come on, God. The guy's just messing with you. Do something. And God is patient, 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 patient. But the story tells us something important for us. God's patience is unbelievably generous, but it's not inexhaustible. There's a moment when God says, in your life, and in my life, and in Pharaoh's life, and the Egyptian's life, and the Hebrew's life, enough. Pharaoh won't bow his knee. He won't budge an inch. And the hardness of his heart causes us as a reader to be looking into a literary mirror of our own lives. All through the story. A hard heart. A hard heart. A hard heart. Watch out for a hard heart. 
What happens with a hardening heart, friends, is it inevitably leads to hardness of hearing God's voice. So is God trying to get your attention this morning? Dallas Willard in his wonderful book, The Great Omission, says this so brilliantly. He says, God does not ordinarily compete for our attention. But there are some times where God intervenes in the world and in our life with a megaphone. Sometimes God uses our brokenness, doesn't he? Sometimes he uses our difficulties, our failures, our suffering to open our closed ears and to clear our distracted minds and to crack hardened hearts. Oxford C.S. Lewis brilliantly said this, well, I think it must have echoed his own life as an atheist for a long time. I think Lewis knew a hard heart well. He makes the point that God whispers in our pleasures, but he often shouts in our pain. Lewis is not saying that God causes our pain and suffering, but that God uses those very things as a megaphone to arouse a deaf and dying world and to speak into the deepest crevasses of a hardening heart. See, the grave danger for each one of us is the hardening of a heart that does not hear God's voice when he speaks. You know, hardened hearts can be religious. The Egyptian people had all kinds of gods who were very religious. If you go there, you study Egyptology, you know how religious that society was. Or a hardened heart can be non-religious. A hardened heart can appear in a child, a student, a young adult, a single of whatever age, a middle-aged person, or a senior person. What is even perhaps most tragic is that hardened hearts often are most profoundly damaging to people who are physically older. What does a hardened heart look like? Well, we know that it takes time to harden. Like a callus, like plaque in, a, in our own physical heart arteries, it goes slow, imperceptibly over time. Like the erosion on a riverbank, the callus on a hand, hardening does not happen overnight. It takes time. Sometimes hardening of a heart is triggered by a disobedience to God that is something very clear in Scripture. Sometimes it's an unwillingness to trust Him for His provision for a job or a relationship or a dream. But I think most of the time, hardening of our hearts is more subtle. It's often living a distracted life, a frenzied, busy life, often a cluttered mind. Sometimes it's fostering a root of bitterness toward a family member, a fellow worker, a teacher, a fellow student. Hardening of the heart occurs and we often allow, I've seen this in my life, a disappointment with God to grow and build. Story of the 10 plagues asks us this question, what is the condition of your heart? 
Perhaps in your life difficulties, your fears, your heartaches, and your loneliness and restlessness, God is speaking to you this morning. See, Pharaoh wanted to live his life without God. It's bottom line. How about you? How about me? God's patience with us is indeed very generous. But it's not inexhaustible. It's been wisely said, I think it's wisely said, the same sun that melts wax hardens clay. So what's the condition of your heart this morning? What I love about the story of the ten plagues is even the hardest heart, God will pull out all stops to make himself known to us through his power, but also through his mercy. The tenth plague captures God's revelation of making himself known through mercy. As chapter 11 begins, God informs Moses the final plague is coming, the plague of death. Yet even the dark cloud of God's judgment, God's mercy shines through. Look at me at verse 4 of chapter 11. So Moses said, thus says the Lord, about midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on the throne even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the mill and all the firstborn of the cattle. There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt such as there never been nor will ever be again. And notice verse 10. Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he did not let the people of Israel go out of his land. Even under the threat of a plague of death for his entire nation, Pharaoh will not cry out for mercy. And rather, he will harden his heart even more. And here we are encountering a mystery. Do you see it? The mystery of God that somehow says, after hardening our heart, God says, enough. Somehow in that mystery of God's providence and human choice, we find a space of peril where God says to Pharaoh, and he can say to us, okay, okay, you got it, Pharaoh. Here, let me harden you some more. See, what God says he will do, he will do. And chapter 12 reminds us that God makes good on his promise of judgment. And yet, isn't it amazing? In the midst of God's strong hand of judgment, do you see it? God's loving hand provides a merciful rescue for his covenant people. The merciful rescue requires a blood offering of a lamb. A lamb, notice, in the Passover account that is without blemish. Notice how God's covenant people in the story are instructed to take the lamb's blood and place it on two doorposts and on the lentil on top and prepare a special Passover meal. And the theme of it is to prepare for a quick exit. I'm going to let you go. I'm going to deliver you tonight. So get your bags ready. In chapter 12, verses 12 to 13, we read these words. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast and all the gods of Egypt. I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This is a night in human history where nobody slept. God's covenant people, let's not forget, are also sinful and broken. 
just as the Egyptians, but they in faith respond to God's word and they rest under the obedience of their love. And they rest under the blood of a lamb. Pharaoh freaks out, of course, not in repentance. He summons Moses and Aaron and says, get out, get out, get out. And the story will continue next week. Lots of twists and turns. But here we have a moment in history where the Exodus writer wants us to slow down and dwell in chapter 12. The structure, the flow moves from fast moving to a snail's pace. Chapter 12 focuses on a memorial instituted to remind God's covenant people of God's mercy and the costliness of a rescue. And notice in the stories you read it, it is a memorial called Passover that not only looks back at God's provision of a lamb's blood on the doorpost, but also a memorial that looks ahead anticipating an innocent lamb's blood shed on a Roman cross. We must not miss the point of the Exodus story is to point us to the one true deliverer. The God who longs to make himself known will make himself known through judgment and mercy through his very son, Jesus. From Genesis 22 on, if you read the Bible, you know that at that moment when Abraham is asked to have his faith tested to sacrifice Isaac, his son, the promised son, as Abraham is raising the knife above his son, Isaac, the promised son, says, Father, the fire and the wood, and then he raises the question that is raised throughout the Bible. Where is the lamb? The wood and the fire, but where is the lamb? Where is the lamb? When the gospel writer John opens the gospel of John, he introduces Jesus the Messiah as what? Behold, the lamb of God who has come to take away the sin of the world. The Exodus story does not stop with the blood of a lamb on a doorpost. It points to the blood of a lamb on a cross. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God I am, the God who has come near, who wants to be known, is known not in a burning bush, but on a bloody cross. New Testament scholar Don Carson brings the story of Exodus right to where it should be at the cross, and he says these words, do you want to see the greatest evidence of the love of God? Do you want to see the greatest evidence of the justice of God? go to the cross. It is where wrath and mercy meet, where holiness and peace kiss each other. See, what the story of Exodus tells us, what the story of the plagues tell us is this. The God who desires to be known will ultimately be known. The question is, in your life and mine and in human history, is either he'll be known through judgment or mercy. The Apostle Paul tells us that Jesus after his death and resurrection and ascension, is given a name, the great I am. The name above every name, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and earth and bow before him. The name above all names. This God, triune God, longs to be known. The question is, will you and I know this God? Will it be the hardened heart or we're captains of our soul or humble repentance of faith and mercy in the Lamb?
David Brooks, in his wonderful new book, Road to Character, calls all of us to ponder the road of life we're on. He raises the question, is it one of self-reformation or divine rescue? And this is what he says, looking to St. Augustine of old. He says, eventually Augustine came to believe that you can't gradually reform yourself. He concluded that you can't really lead a good life by using old methods. That's because, he says, the method is the problem. The crucial flaw in his old life was the belief that he could be the driver of his own journey. David Brooks writes, so as long as you believe that you are the captain of your own life, you'll be drifting farther and farther from the truth. So what is the condition of your heart this morning? Who is the captain of your life? There are two ultimate options. You are Jesus. This is what we ponder when we come to the Holy Communion table this morning. The Holy Communion table's backdrop is set in Passover in Exodus 12. Jesus, on the night of his betrayal, took bread and he broke it. He said, this is my body broken for you. This is the blood of my new covenant shed for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. Holy Communion is a time, friends, of remembrance of God, a God who has made himself known. A God who provided an exodus rescue for me and you and Jesus' life and death and resurrection. And when we partake of communion, we take it with the most thankful, grateful heart, knowing that Jesus' blood paid it all for us. Because what Jesus has done for us, we can be forgiven and made whole. We can be rescued from the greatest peril of the human heart, and that's sin and death. Holy communion is a time of thankfulness, but it's also a time of reflection of our heart. Where we transparently pause this morning, all of us, wherever we are in our spiritual life, to honestly and transparently look into the depths of our heart and deal with what is really there. So let's take a moment in quiet reflection while everyone's quiet and ask God to reveal what's really the state of our heart this morning. Let's bow. While you're quiet in your hearts and minds, let me remind you of Scripture. Apostle John says, if we say that we do not have sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What's in your heart this morning? What's the condition of it? Is your heart softening to Jesus, or is it hardening? Are there areas of confession and repentance that you need to address? Are there flirtations with idols? Is there self-pity? Is disappointment with God festering? Is busyness and distraction? Partial obedience, excuses, roots of bitterness, hardening your heart? Will you allow in humility and confession and repentance the Spirit of God to soften your heart and speak to you and cleanse you? Maybe you've never trusted Christ as your Lord and Savior. Maybe this be this moment where you understand the rich truths of the gospel and that Jesus meets you right where you are to give you forgiveness and wholeness. One of my favorite hymns is What Can Wash Away My Sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Holy Spirit, speak to us. Transform us. Open our hearts to worship you and to be your people.
Gracious Lord, merciful God. Our precious Lord Jesus, bless these elements of the bread and the vine. And may we gather in your name under your blood with joyful worship, experiencing your cleansing and forgiveness and wholeness. In Jesus' name, amen.